Hello everyone and welcome to Here's the Plan, our brand new youth-led podcast where we're working out a 10-step plan to pull ourselves out of the mess of the twin climate and biodiversity crises. I'm James Miller. And I'm Bella Lack. Today on the show we're delving into the power of law in driving change and our guest today is leading a climate law case of unprecedented scale and consequence into court this very week. But before we introduce him, we just want to lay a bit of context down for this episode, because we're actually in an incredibly significant moment for climate lawsuits around the world. The number of climate lawsuits has more than doubled in the last five years, and now numbers in the thousands globally. Both governments and corporations are in the firing lines. Today, we're speaking to Jerry Liston. He's a senior lawyer on what is the largest climate legal action to have ever happened. He's helping six young people from Portugal between the ages of 11 and 24, and they're about to appear in the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights this Wednesday. They're taking on 32 countries and arguing that those governments are taking insufficient action to address the climate crisis, and that in doing so, they're violating their human rights. We spoke to Jerry a little while ago about the case, the quite astonishing scale of the implications should they succeed, and just more generally about how we should view the role of law in driving systemic change. So let's dive in and hear what Jerry has to say. We'll see you on the other side. So what we've been doing is giving a bit of context at the beginning of the person that we're talking to, a bit of an insight into their mind by giving them one silly question as an icebreaker. And we've made it topical for each person. We wanted to ask you, if you could make up one silly law, what would it be? Okay, I'm going to up for a serious one. Uh, I was thinking, what is the simplest single measure that a state could take to address the climate crisis? And I think on the basis of what the science now says, a simple ban on opening any new oil or gas fields or coal mines is a very achievable, simple uh, and science-based law that could be passed by all governments uh, of states that have fossil fuel reserves. That's a good one. And it'll be so easy as well. You can yeah. clearly see when it was being breached. It will be, like you say, very in line with the science, very in line with the IEA's call not to open any new oil and gas exploration. I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting you came at it from the climate angle immediately, because when I was looking at your history, lots of it is specifically almost exclusively human rights law, isn't it? And then you turn towards climate from a human rights angle. I don't know if you would say it's a leap or if you would say it's the same issue, just with different names. But how did you make that leap into climate from human rights? Yeah, as as you say, I think it's fundamentally climate change poses probably the gravest threat to human welfare. I think at this stage, I think it's pretty well established that human rights law applies to climate change uh, and to the harms that it causes. Uh, So looking at all the different possible areas of law that can, in theory, do something about climate change, I think human rights law is the area of law that has the greatest potential. I think the massive part of this case is the fact that you're doing this with young people. Um, and I just want to know what what's it like working on a lawsuit with everyone under what age is it? The eldest applicant, Claudia, is 23. Okay, so everyone under 23. 
is it different to things that you worked on before or does it feel like there's kind of this clarity of vision that these young people are standing up for their future and they know what they want it's outstandingly the most amazing case or thing of any kind that I've worked on and it's largely because it's such a privilege to be able to work with this group of children and young adults and I think it's important to mention so this was first an idea as early as 2017 but we were just interested in the question about whether a case at the regional or international level against multiple states could reinforce the efforts of lawyers operating at the domestic level. We were all talking about this idea in a very broad sense but it was really just a question and then these terrible fires happened in Portugal in June of 2017 and actually one of the worst affected regions was part of Portugal where one of my colleagues at the time Rita Mota is from so she relayed to her friends and family that she was involved in these conversations uh, it was out of that that this group emerged from just a very organic and authentic reaction to a dreadful extreme climate change induced event so it's just been such a privilege working with them and also to see them as a group develop in their confidence and in their ability to communicate uh, on this issue so authentically and so effectively yeah it's been my favorite part of the, the work on this case Wonderful. No, I think it is really inspiring. And I hope we can um, find some way to direct listeners as well towards those young people, whether it's trying to slip in a recording of some of their messages or put a link to the videos of them speaking themselves as well, because I think it's really inspiring, actually. I've seen the videos myself and uh, almost cried. They're quite powerful. I was listening to a panel discussion, actually, Jerry, on, on climate litigation a few weeks ago. And one of the members of the audience stood up and they asked everyone on the panel what they thought the most significant and important climate cases coming up through the courts were at the moment. And every single one of the panelists mentioned the case that you're working on right now, which is really cool. What is it about your case that you think makes it so important and so exciting? Firstly, just to step back, so there are three climate cases before the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights. The significance of that is that the European Court of Human Rights is going to decide in at least one of those cases uh, what the obligations on states are with regards to climate change mitigation. And in, I think, every climate case in Europe so far that has raised a human rights argument in relation to the obligations of states to reduce their emissions. The European Convention on Human Rights has featured in one way or the other. And domestic courts have so far taken quite different approaches to that. Some courts actually, uh, specifically the uh, courts in England and Wales and in Ireland, have pointed to the absence of a decision from the European Court of Human Rights on this issue. Uh, they're effectively saying they wouldn't get ahead of the European Court of Human Rights and make a judgment on this issue before the court in Strasbourg itself does. So the significance then is that this judgment that will come in at least one of these cases, hopefully uh, all three, will set out the position under the European Convention on Human Rights in relation to climate change. And that will then filter down again into the domestic level and will provide, hopefully, a much harder-edged basis for lawyers operating at the domestic level in taking climate cases in Europe. In terms of our case specifically, 
I suppose it is quite unique in being brought against over 30 respondent states. It's actually the most ever states to appear physically before a court of any kind in any context. So I suppose it is a case of unprecedented scale relating to an issue of unprecedented consequence. And the judgment that we seek, the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights are themselves legally binding. So the judgment would effectively operate like a separate legally binding treaty imposed on the states by the European Court of Human Rights. And obviously, it would be capturing all of the major emitters uh, within Europe, given the, the number of respondents in this case. Yeah, I think that's what makes it uh, a, a very significant case. And we're eagerly uh, anticipating a judgment. That's so exciting. Is everyone really hopeful about that? We are cautiously optimistic because uh, I think all the signals so far from the court have been very positive. When you file a case with the European Court of Human Rights, there's every likelihood statistically that the court will just strike the case out as what they call manifestly ill-founded on the basis that there just isn't sufficient evidence or the arguments aren't sufficiently strong. Only about 15% of cases actually get taken up by the court. Uh, and then the court has a huge backlog and it can take a year or more for the court to communicate a case to the respondent state. But in our case, it did so within about two months of filing the case having granted us priority status on the basis of urgency and importance. So that was yeah, a very encouraging signal. But everything is still in play. Again, to get a little bit technical in the European Court of Human Rights, the issues in the cases are divided between admissibility issues and merits issues. Very simply, merits issues, they're the issues that deal with are the state's policies sufficient. Mm -hmm. But before you get to the merits issues, you've got to get over a number of admissibility issues uh, depending on the case. In our case, we have uh, three main admissibility issues, one being whether the youth applicants themselves are victims in the technical sense under the European Convention on Human Rights. The second being whether the respondent states other than Portugal owe them obligations because typically states only owe obligations to people within their borders. We are arguing very strongly that the respondent states in this case, other than Portugal, do owe extraterritorial obligations to these applicants. Uh, and then finally, we brought the case directly to the European Court of Human Rights. Normally, you do what's called exhausting domestic remedies. You take the case at the domestic level and then you go all the way up the tiers of courts, all the way up to the Supreme Court, if possible. And uh, if you're not successful there, then you go to Strasbourg, whereas we went directly to Strasbourg. And we have all sorts of reasons uh, why we did, including that there's no way six children and young adults can pursue cases at the domestic level in 33 different jurisdictions. So that's an argument uh, that we also have to overcome in our case before the court actually gets to the adequacy of the policies of the respondent governments. We still have to overcome all our admissibility points uh, before we get to our merits arguments. And yeah, still plenty of work to be done. That's really exciting. Like you say, it sounds really positive. I'd like to take it back. You mentioned um, that you had a suite of arguments that you were using. But could you could you explain how those arguments about human rights violations are being tied specifically to those um, plaintiffs that are bringing the case forward? 
the six Portuguese youth. That's a really important point to come back to the issue of victim status. So Article 34 of the Convention says that it's only a victim who can bring a complaint uh, against a state to the European Court of Human Rights. And one of the, say, challenging aspects of the victim status hurdle is that when you're talking about future harm, you have to show a likelihood of harm. Now, what we can show on the evidence now is that we can say for certain that people in Portugal will perish, sadly, as a result of worsening impacts, including from uh, heat extremes, but also storms and, and, and various other impacts too. With heat, we can say at a very minimum, it is absolutely inevitable that the youth applicant's ability to just do normal things, exercise, spend time outdoors, get a good night's sleep, will be curtailed increasingly by rising heat extremes. And they've already provided evidence of how they've been impacted to date by heat waves bringing uh, temperatures in excess of 40 degrees sometimes. Now, Portugal is projected to experience heat waves uh, according to some models that could endure for several weeks, maybe even more than a month, with daytime temperatures in excess of 40 degrees Celsius. So, yeah, we argued the case initially on more uh, conventional grounds, uh, Article 2, the right to life and the right to privacy and family life under Article 8, and also an argument that the youth applicants' rights to be free from discrimination was being violated. But of course, we also asked the respondent states and us uh, whether the rights of the applicants under Article 3 of the Convention are being breached. Now, Article 3 is the prohibition of torture, inhuman or degrading treatment. I think it's that aspect, actually, that the court was um, honing in on was about the mental health impacts, just the anxiety from knowing that you are uh, exposed to these dreadful harms and that on our current trajectory, they're just going to get uh, worse and worse. And this case law also about the right to hope and the denial of hope. So that's another way in which we establish uh, that the six youth applicants are themselves victims of the violations uh, that we allege the respondent states are committing. So this, this is what we're trying to prevent from happening. If all goes well, if, if the case goes exactly as you want it to, what will be the implications of the case? What will these countries be compelled to do? Yeah, so there's two essential components. First, an obligation to reduce their territorial emissions, and that's what uh, most climate cases to date have focused on. Now, the difference between our case and other climate cases is that we argue for more ambitious reductions than at least any domestic court so far has been willing to contemplate. The Dutch Supreme Court in the Urgenda case took what's called a fair share range. In the IPCC literature, there's a range of different measures of rich countries' fair share of the global reductions required to hold warming to below two degrees. And the court in the Netherlands, the Supreme Court said, we are a court, we're judges, we can't get too much into the domain of elected politicians. 
but still there's a human rights issue here and we can compel the government to do something. So what they said was that the appropriate approach for a court was to select the lowest end of the fair share range as an absolute minimum. And that's an understandable position for a court to take, particularly the first court in the world to order a government to uh, reduce its emissions by a greater amount than it is aiming to do. In that sense, the Urgenda case was absolutely groundbreaking. But the reality is that if all states choose the lowest end of the fair share range, we don't achieve any, whatever long-term temperature goal we're, we're targeting. So we use a different methodology. It's called the Climate Action Tracker methodology. And that essentially, again, works with fair share ranges, but identifies the point on every state's fair share range that they each need to achieve in order to reach the 1.5 degree long-term temperature goal. So that results in actually quite significant increases in ambitions. We're talking about net zero by 2030, as opposed to 2050 for most uh, rich countries. It varies, of course, state by state. But in, in the UK, for example, it would be, I think, significantly in excess of net zero by 2030. Now, no, the UK could not achieve the entirety of that domestically. So we argue that it should achieve as much as possible of its fair share domestically, and then whatever it can't achieve domestically, it can achieve by contributing to emissions reductions uh, in other countries through climate finance and the like. That's the obligation that states would be under in relation to their territorial emissions uh, if we were successful. Wonderful. Then there's the non-territorial emissions component, and that uh, breaks down into three categories. So firstly, we say that states have obligations to reduce the production of fossil fuels in line with the rates of reduction that are required to hold global warming to 1.5 degrees. We, we argue that if a state produces a lot of fossil fuels, but does so primarily for export, the producing state still has a responsibility to reduce those emissions uh, and that production. That's the production uh, argument. Then we also have an argument in relation to imported emissions or what are sometimes called embedded emissions. So the emissions that are produced in the production of goods that are imported into a state. And we argue that states have an obligation uh, to take measures to reduce those emissions as well. And then finally, we have a category that relates to the scope one, two, and three emissions of companies domiciled within uh, a particular state. So imagine a bank, for example, which finances all sorts of activity all around the world, could be um, fossil fuel extraction, for example. And we argue that the states are under an obligation to themselves impose obligations on the companies to reduce their global scope one, two, and three emissions. This is so exciting. So what you're saying is there are these problems with the the Paris Agreement as it stands, and that, that countries, they set their own targets domestically, and uh, the agreement itself doesn't have the capacity to challenge them on that. And also that it doesn't account for offshore emissions, as you said. But but this case can, can help solve both of those things and hold these countries to legal account for it. They, they can be found to be in breach of the law. Can I take us back a whole step um, to obligations and legally binding and ask, 
what happens so a law is implemented ratified and then if a state doesn't follow through what does legally binding actually look like in practice another really good question so it it varies from court to court where we see practical consequences of the decision we seek being most significant is that as i mentioned the case law of the european court of human rights has been invoked in pretty much every climate case that has been taken in Europe and the courts have engaged with the convention as i mentioned previously in various different ways and so if we can get a judgment that sets out the position authoritatively with a grand chamber decision by 17 judges then the practical implementation of that will primarily take place by lawyers at the domestic level bringing it into a domestic court and saying this is now what you need to do and those courts domestic courts have very significant powers of enforcement now at the same time and i think this is probably the most important point in relation to climate change litigation no courts are going to solve the climate crisis by themselves and the real ultimate enforcement of all of these uh, decisions takes place by the traditional heavy lifting of activism and advocacy and using them as a tool to put pressure on governments to act in terms of what's required and the level of increase in ambition that's needed no court by itself or no legal system by itself will be able to uh, impose that on governments and expect that they will just automatically implement their their judgments without a huge effort by civil society to pile in then and use these judgments and use these orders to really force the change uh, that's uh, demanded by those judgments. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. And well, I, I guess seeing as, as this is something that the government's well, from the fact that they're standing in court against you trying to shoot this judgment down, of course, it's something they don't want to happen. Are they all working together to oppose this case? Are they acting as, as separate individual defendants? Are there some that are standing more firmly against you than others? I'm interested to see what that looks like. Very much so. Of the 33 sets of, they're called observations, there are two that stand out in terms of their uh, the force with which they are argued, they will be of interest to all of us on this conversation. Uh, one is Ireland and one is the UK. Really? Yeah. Very few arguments that are made by a respondent state other than Ireland or the UK that's not made by Ireland or the UK. Of course, when it comes to defending individual policies, they're state-specific just because every state has a different uh, set of policies. So yeah, there is a quite a range. Some states have conceded certain points. For example, the applicability of Article 8, the right to privacy and family life. It's a very low threshold for that article to apply in relation to environmental harm. It's if any environmental harm impacts someone's quality of life, even before uh, detrimentally impacting their health, that can engage uh, Article 8. Some states have conceded, yeah, Article 8 is applicable, but they then go on to say, but we're not breaching it because we're doing, we're doing enough. But Ireland, for example, has strenuously argued that not even Article 8 uh, is applicable. It's just 
contested every single point. And then on the question about the extent to which states are cooperating, from the beginning, states have um, clearly coordinated on uh, procedural issues. For example, they all came together and wrote a letter following a clear template uh, on the same day, asking the court to, first of all, overturn its decision to fast track the case, saying there was no urgency. And secondly, I mentioned the distinction between the admissibility issues and the merits issues. The governments uh, said that, in their view, this case was so obviously inadmissible that there's no way they should be required to defend their their policies and, and engage with the merits questions before the admissibility issues were resolved. Uh, but the court held firm and insisted that they make submissions in relation to both uh, admissibility and merits issues. Now the court has asked the governments to submit a single submission on as many issues that they can possibly agree on and on which are common to all of them. So the governments are, as we speak, uh, working on that. You are uniting the world, uniting the world against you, <laughs> but, you're, but you're uniting the world. Can I tack one quick question onto the end of that, which is that actually this case isn't alone as having youth plaintiffs taking a climate case to court. And actually, I think we're seeing quite an exponential rise in that happening in, in domestic cases around all around the world as well. Do you agree? Is, is that happening? And do you think that's going to make a, a difference? Absolutely. I suppose the reason that youth applicants are taking cases all around the world is the same reason that young people are turning up on the streets all around the world. We've watched the youth climate movement grow exponentially over the course of the long lifetime of this case. I think one of the very powerful arguments that young people can make from a legal point of view is that they are going to live according to their life expectancy uh, throughout the uh, entirety of this century when if we remain in our current trajectory, you know, by the final decades of this century, things are going to be absolutely catastrophic. At the same time, I should point out that one of the cases before the Grand Chamber is a case brought by a group of elderly women in Switzerland, and they emphasize how already they are massively affected by uh, the impacts of climate change. And again, in particular, the impacts of extreme heat. And I think it's going to be particularly powerful that the full generational spectrum will be represented uh, in Strasbourg when these cases uh, come to be heard and decided. There was one one more question that I had before we go to our final question, which was, is, is there anything that, that Bella and I can do or that listeners at home can do to help support you in this case? Yeah, I'd, I'd say when I step back and think about how are we here? How has this case got this far? How have all these cases got this far? I genuinely believe that courts don't operate in a vacuum. It's not just a case of picking up the paper and looking at the arguments and making a decision on that basis. Courts are responsive to what's going on all around them. And also, as I said before, these cases won't succeed ultimately in terms of the outcome we're fundamentally trying to achieve unless people are willing and able to get involved in whatever form of activism it is that ultimately 
brings about the change to the systems that are putting us on such a catastrophic path. So I would say the best way to support this case and to support the ultimate objective that that we're all after is to get involved in some way with an organization. Could be a local organization, could be a national organization, it could be an international organization like Avaz or 350.org or Greenpeace. We usually conclude the podcast with a manifesto by asking if you could tell individuals, businesses and governments one thing that they should do, what would you recommend sort of in a sentence? Governments dramatically increase their ambition in in terms of mitigating climate change. Mm -hmm. Businesses, well, that depends on the business. Uh, If it's a fossil fuel industry, cease to exist beyond ceasing to exist in the case of fossil fuel industries uh, or companies, I would say at the very minimum, no greenwashing because it's just the last thing we need at the moment. And yeah, for citizens, get involved. This is a personal view, but worry less about one's own individual contribution. Uh, It is important, but it's much more the fossil fuel industry wants you to worry only about your own individual contribution to climate change and not worry about the systems that have us in this situation and that make fossil fuel companies and fossil fuel industries so powerful. So worry less about one's own individual contribution and think more about how we can get involved in a small way, even with organizations that uh, are contributing to progressive change of the system awesome that's a wonderful answer and very succinct so thank you very much just again we're we're both so impressed with what you're doing really grateful that somebody is is bringing this forward and we'll both keep a very keen eye on how it progresses thank you jerry thanks james and thanks bella it's been a pleasure speaking to you well I thought that was an incredibly exciting and inspiring interview. There's just so much that I have to talk about. Is there anything from that conversation you particularly want to bring up? Yeah, I think there's something that actually wasn't in the conversation I wanted to bring up and see what you thought about it, because we know from what Jerry said and from the evidence that wrecking the climate is a serious violation of human rights. But something I think we overlooked in the conversation is that destroying natural habitat is equally as much of a violation of rights. Have you heard of the term ecocide and what do you think about it? I have heard of it. I confess I don't really know all that much about it, but I do know that there's a really big push to try and get ecocide adopted Mm -hmm. as an international crime. In the International Criminal Court, there are four crimes against peace in something called the Rome Statute. And there's genocide, war crime, crimes against humanity and crimes of aggression. And there was supposed to be a fifth crime, which was meant to be ecocide. And at the last minute, it was pulled out. And I just imagine how different the world would be if last century ecocide was stated as a crime and if um, countries and organisations and corporations had to comply to that. And Coca-Cola couldn't pollute as much and that large vessel in Mauritius a few years ago that caused a massive oil spill would have been prosecuted. And I think it's just interesting how uh, defining something as illegal could have changed our world so much by now. Really interesting as well on that front to note that I've heard alongside documenting war crimes that are happening in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, people are actually going around documenting environmental destruction as well and trying to put, put together a case 
that Russia is committing illegal environmental destruction in its aggression shown towards Ukraine. Alongside human rights and ecocide, some countries around the world are adopting another kind of law, which is rights of nature law. And again, that provides another different legal avenue for lawyers to defend nature in courts, again, where it might be less easy mm. to directly attribute harms to people, to um, environmental destruction. I've heard a lot about ecocide. I haven't heard a lot about rights of nature. I mean, the case that I know of um, rights of nature being used is in Ecuador, um, which has a rights of nature clause in its constitution. And I know that was used to defend a patch of rainforest against a mining company. But yeah, it's all very exciting stuff and opens a lot of alternative strategies that lawyers will be able to explore in the coming decades. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you mention rights of nature because the rights of nature would come before the harm and the ecocide would come after the harm. And something which Jerry spoke about is that the European human rights framework is designed to deal with harms that have already occurred. And so the difficulty with the case that he's trying to put through is that it's looking at harm in the future. And I think there's a level of foresight that's needed because we're basing this um based on different climate models and climate predictions. And law is not about ambiguity, it's quite binary. I think there's definitely something to be said for that. And one of the challenges that Jerry explicitly mentioned was the fact that they have to show a likelihood of harm going into the future. And that's not necessarily a very easy thing to do. It, it relies on quite a good understanding of the climate science and of climate models. And I think they're, they're quite heavily reliant on scientific reports explicitly detailing how um, extreme heat events are going to worsen into the future in Portugal and further reports of how that will impact health. And without that science to underpin the legal argument, they would be having a lot more trouble. And actually, this is something that's really interesting to me because it kind of opens the whole topic of how climate science is really important in law. There's a specific field of climate science called attribution science, which deals with trying to quantify the extent to which anthropogenic climate change is contributing towards the likelihood and the severity of extreme weather events when they happen. And for a lot of climate law cases, especially the ones that are trying to claim damages from polluters like big fossil fuel companies, they need to show that causal link. They need to prove not only that climate change is causing impacts that are harming them, but that the emissions that are coming from the polluter, that they need to show that those emissions are materially contributing towards the climate change that is increasing frequency or severity of these extreme weather events. Yeah, I was saying, I think so much of the terminology used within climate lawsuits and lawsuits in general is so highbrow and so inaccessible. And when a big part of the population can't even understand how it works, it's very hard for people to become engaged. So I think greater communication of law to the public is needed. Yeah, I think so, especially given, you know, these are our human rights. These should be some of the first things that we learn as citizens is the, the mm. basic rights which we're afforded so that we can recognize when they're being violated and hold different bodies to account for that. It's crazy that I couldn't name to you the human rights that I have. I've got no idea. I think that makes quite a good transition to another thing that we like to close every episode with, which is talking about 
how people at home can engage with this, specifically with this episode with law and help push for systemic change using this tool. So I don't know if you had any ideas on that front. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things I took from what Jerry said is that an important principle of law is that a law shouldn't be intangible and it shouldn't be illusory because the law isn't the end goal. It's a means to get to the end goal. And the end goal is lowering air pollution, lowering emissions, preventing environmental damage. And the real enforcement of all of these decisions takes place by activism and advocacy and campaigning and using those three as a tool to put pressure on governments and corporations to take action. So I think one of the most important things we can do when talking about law isn't becoming lawyers, it's becoming educated on what the laws need to be and then campaigning for those and then being the watchdogs to make sure that they're put in place. What do you think? What should people go and do? Yes, I think you make a really good point. Jerry also really emphasised the importance of public pressure and putting a spotlight on these cases when they're happening. I think that's really important. And I think another critical thing off the back of that is that when a verdict does come through the court, it's really important that as activists, as citizens, we hop on that verdict and use it to pressure governments to make change. Because often you get rulings coming through to say, oh, government X has breached some environmental law here, and then nothing happens because there's no public pressure to do anything about it. It just gets lost in other news. A prime example of that, I think, is in the UK. Just a couple of years ago, in 2021, the Court of Justice in the EU ruled that the UK had systematically and persistently broken legal limits on toxic air pollution for a decade and found that nitrogen dioxide levels were illegally high in more than three quarters of urban areas. Mm. And yet this doesn't seem to have really caused much of a stir or much outrage in the UK. It's not been occupying the headlines as much as the expansion of the ultra-low emission zone, which is actually what the government's own research shows to be the most effective way to tackle those illegally high levels of air pollution. So I think that's just an example of where Um, a government has been taken to court, the court has told them what they're doing is illegal. But as Jerry called for, we need the activists to come in and do the heavy lifting. And I think what's interesting is that law shapes cultural attitudes. That's the ambition of law in a way, is to change societal attitudes about behaviours and behaviours that are wrong. And so we have to remember that the ultimate aim isn't just to get these things ratified in law is to change how we actually perceive environmental damage. And so no matter whether the case succeeds or not, there's a lot to be done about how we accept the actions of corporations and governments. Am I right, James, in thinking the hearing of Jerry's lawsuit is in two days from now? Absolutely. What we're going to do is put more information about that lawsuit on social media. We'll make sure it's in the show notes. So if you want to find out more and support Jerry and his work, go and read the show notes and please support what he's doing because I think it's incredible. And like I say, no matter whether it succeeds or not, this is fantastic infrastructure for further cases to to succeed and continue. Shout about it everywhere. On all your social media, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your, your grandmother's dog. That's what we need to do. Inform the dogs. And while you're at it, while you're shouting to your grandmother's dog, 
maybe you could also whisper in their ear as a little afterthought that they might like to subscribe and share our podcast as well. I would whisper to the dogs that if they would like to support us further, they can tip us the equivalent of a coffee on coffee.com with a K and we'll have links to that and our social media all in the show notes. Absolutely. And next time on the podcast, we have another fantastic guest, Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, who was the Minister for the Environment for Costa Rica. And he managed to achieve a a number of incredible things during his time in office. He transitioned Costa Rica to 100% clean electricity, and he managed to double their forest cover. So tune in next week to find out more about how that happened and how we can learn from that to try and stop deforestation from happening all around the world. And Costa Rica is my favourite topic to bring up in every conversation. So our debrief will be extensive next week. (laughs) Yes, watch out. Steal yourselves for an hour and a half long episode. We'll see you then. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Bye.